Welcome to episode 132 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So we already know the power of intermittent fasting and also the ketogenic diet. That said, if you are practicing a ketogenic intermittent fasting lifestyle, there are a few ways you can take your results to the next level. First, you can boost digestion and elimination. Don't I know about that one? Second, you can fuel your mitochondria for energy and exercise. And third, of course, you can enhance your fat-burning metabolism. Well, thankfully, there's a product created by one of our favorite companies, by Optimizers, and it helps do just that. It's called Capex, and it's made specifically for those on keto and low-carb diets, and especially for intermittent fasting. So what Capex does is three basic things. First of all, it breaks down the fats you eat into fatty acids using a proprietary lipase and dandelion extract blend. Basically, this means you're breaking down the dietary fat so that you can actually use it for energy. Say goodbye to sluggish feelings after meals. Second, Capex helps transport those fatty acids into the muscles and the liver. And there are several ingredients that actually dramatically increase the fatty acid oxidation inside your mitochondria, both in your muscle and in your liver. It basically means you're transporting way more fuel into your motor and you're increasing your motor's horsepower. If you take three to five capsules in the morning on an empty stomach, the energy can be absolutely incredible. It's basically like a cup of coffee and it can last for six to 10 hours without jitters or anxiety. Plus it also helps in the um, elimination department. And of course, by revving up your metabolism, Capex can also lead to enhanced fat loss. We're not saying it's a miracle fat loss pill, those definitely don't exist, but the research does show that Capex helps raise metabolic rate and other fat loss hormones. So if you'd like to try it for yourself, you can go to kenergize.com slash ifpodcast. That's K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E.com forward slash ifpodcast, all one word, and you'll automatically get 20% off any package using the coupon code ifpodcastkx. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 132 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And how are you today, Jen? Well, I am great, and I have some wonderful news. What is that? Oh, wait, I think I know. Oh, okay. Go ahead. (laughs) We sold our house. Yay. Actually, I didn't. You know what? I didn't know that. I okay. knew that you got an offer. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. We well, we we accepted an offer. It's pending, so we're supposed so to close exciting. in. Gosh, two weeks. We're closing in two weeks. So yeah, it sold in six days of this time of listing it. So which makes you realize that things work out when they're meant to work out. You know, if we had sold it earlier, you know, before we took it off the market. If we'd sold it, then things just wouldn't have worked out with the timing that they did. It gave us time to really move and get everything out of there. And Yeah, I feel like things always, I think so what too. you just said, they work out the way they're supposed to. Yeah. For, for listeners, it's actually really funny because I think we had, I don't know if it was, was it, so was it last episode that we were talking about your house? And right. Then, and then we hung up the call and <laughs> you got the, didn't you get the offer like, right after that. Yes, I think so. Yeah, like that day. It was that day. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. So we didn't even have the open house. The open house was supposed to be um, the next day and we didn't have it. So (laughs) yeah, it was great. So it's a relief. You know, I'm just, I'm counting on everything working out smoothly and going through. (laughs) 
just in general, I feel like that's something I've started implementing more as far as things will work out. I don't know, like like not worrying about things right. as much, just kind of like dealing with things on a case-by-case basis and just knowing that things – because things are going to happen either way. Exactly. So um, And they will work out because things – happen. I mean, you don't want to own two houses. So we were hoping to not, I mean, I guess you might want to own two houses, but we weren't wanting to rent houses. So (laughs) we didn't want to do that. But I was like, you know, worst case scenario, it sits for a while, but um, I know it's going to work out. So anyway, that is, yeah, it's a relief. Very exciting. It'll be even more exciting when it closes. But (laughs) like I said, I have confidence it's going to work out. Well, awesome. Awesome. So what's new with you? So I've started experimenting with something that I'm really loving that listeners probably would have thought I'd already tried, but I had never tried before, actually. Trying to decide if I should say it on the podcast. Well, now you kind of have to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Coffee enemas. Okay. Have you you ever done one? Well, you know that I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, Jen. Um, I, I'm there. Wow. Just okay. wow. All right. um, so I was inspired to because the most recent episode, well, not when this airs, but the most recent episode of the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast with was with um, Dr. Stephen Cabral. He's a podcast, he has books, but he focuses on detox. And he was talking about them and I was editing it and I was like, I want to try this. But apparently, so people think that they're for cleansing the colon. They're actually really for liver support. So apparently when you do them, it shuttles the caffeine directly to certain ducts in the liver. The liver's constantly filtering your blood, but it makes the liver immediately filter all of your blood really, really quickly and then dump all of its toxins. So it supports liver health and it's like a rapid detox. I basically went from feeling non-functional due to some, some issues I'm dealing with to feeling like I could climb Mount Everest. Now I've been doing more research on them and I'm like, wow. So I don't know if that's TMI, but I think as far as like just from a health perspective, I really, really think, I I really think um, there's something there. And you know that I'm like, what is it? That protocol for cancer, like Gerson? Gerson? Gerson. Is it Gerson? Mm -hmm. Gerson therapy? I think that's how they became really well known was through that protocol for cancer. So yeah. All right. Well, you just let me know how it goes. <laughs> there, my skin though is like it's making massive changes in my skin. I can't. Well, that's good. And so many things, it's crazy. Yeah, I have a friend who does them. I, you know, a friend of mine swears by them. I think that's a one-way street though, so I'm not doing any enemas of any kind. <laughs> it's so funny. No, well, I think it's really funny because I, I think most people would have assumed it would be something I would like have, have already done. Yeah, but I don't know. There's just something. Out of all the biohacks, I would consider it a biohack, sort of. Yeah, I think so. It's, I would too. It's one. Of, I feel like it's one of the less approachable biohacks. Remember when we got that um, question from the from the listener asking if we had done upside down coffee enemas? I do remember that. Yeah, I haven't done upside down or right side up or anyway. <laughs> no, I've also never done any enema of. Oh, like no, none. <laughs> Not planning to. No. <laughs> Jen and her fabulous digestion. Well, you know. We are done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. Let's get started. I wonder if I'm going to regret talking about that. <laughs> well, you had it on your podcast, so. No, I didn't talk about it on my podcast, though. So. But you talked, he he mentioned it. Right. But I didn't say I was, it's out there. Who cares? Yeah. All the, I feel like <laughs> all the biohacking people talk about doing them, so it's fine. People. They expect you to do wacky things if you're biohacking. That's That's true. what I think. That's I am apparently not a biohacker. <laughs> I do intermittent fasting and that's all. Yep. <laughs> I got no biohacking cred. That's so funny. All right. So our first question comes from Amanda and the subject is follow up and which fasting length is better. And Amanda says, hey guys, love your podcast. So keep it up. First, I wanted to follow up about a previous question. I had asked about whether or not I should eat for a big event, a mountain climb, or complete it fasted. I heard your answer to my question the day I was driving back from the climb. I just wanted you and all the listeners to know that I had been doing one meal a day for a couple of months, but I ate balanced food, like macro balanced, but a little extra carbs, the day of my mountain climb. This was actually two separate climbs over a few days, and I felt like superwoman. I didn't feel sluggish at all. 
In fact, I was in front of the pack most of the time with my 16-year-old nephew. I'm a 37-year-old female. For what it's worth, training fasted, but then completing the event with food, leaning toward more carbs, worked really, really well for me. This was actually the advice y'all gave in a much earlier podcast, based on Mark Sisson's advice. I just hadn't heard yet when I submitted my question. Anyway, new question. I've been doing IF for about five months with a one meal a day, five hour-ish eating window approach mostly. For about two months, I was stuck regaining and losing the same five pounds, so I added one 48-hour fast a week and I lost about five pounds in a month doing that. My weight is in the normal range at this point, 172 pounds, six feet tall. My question is this, I want to keep going with some longer fasts, 36 to 48 hours, until I lose more fat, but I want to know if you think it would be better to do one 48-hour fast a week or two 36-hour fasts a week. And I mean better, like better for fat or weight loss. I understand it's important to use longer fasts judiciously to protect metabolism, and I'm refeeding well after the longer fast. And I know I should try things and see what works for me and make it fit my lifestyle and all that, but for the sake of discussion, when trying to lose weight slash fat and or break through a plateau, is it best to use one 48-hour fast a week or two 36-hour fasts? I ask partly because the 48 hours are kind of unpleasant for me, and I find the 36 hours more tolerable. Plus, I get to eat breakfast with the fam sometimes, which I love. But if the 48-hour fasts are maybe better, I'll stick it out until I reach my goal or maintenance. What do y'all think? So her question is two 36-hour fasts a week versus one 48-hour fast. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of ironic that she heard us answer her question immediately after she just finished the event. That was like the worst timing ever. That's funny. <laughs> but I'm really, I'm really glad that that she heard it on another another podcast that we had done earlier and that that strategy really worked for her. That's good to know. You know, I'm going to I'm going to be completely honest as always. You know, I'm not any kind of endurance athlete, so <laughs> taking someone else's advice on that is probably smarter <laughs> than asking me. So I'm glad that that she based it on Mark Sisson's advice from an earlier podcast that we we summarized and gave there. All right. So, 48-hour fasts really seem to me to be kind of inconvenient. And you know, I know that you mentioned Amanda that that you don't really like them either. Maybe it's just because of the way I time my fast. You know, like if I were going to try to do a 48-hour fast, I don't know how I would time it to get in a good refeed because I really feel like if you're doing anything beyond 36 hours, you know, as Amanda said, the refeed is really important. You want to make sure that you have an up day after a fast of that long. And I don't think you can have an up day if you're you know, only having like one meal and then going to bed. So you want to schedule it so that you have at least six to eight hours minimum after a longer fast like that. So I just can't imagine scheduling a 48-hour fast. I guess you could stop eating one day at noon and then fast for 48 hours till noon two days later and then open your window there. But I don't know, that just sounds kind of hard. I think it would be a whole lot easier to schedule in two 36-hour fasts per week, especially if you already know that you don't enjoy the 48-hour fasts. When I would do a 36-hour fast, I would you know, close my window after dinner one night, and then the whole next day, I wouldn't eat at all. I would go to bed. Then I would wake up the next day and that was my up day. And I really probably didn't always just start with breakfast. So sometimes mine stretched from 36 to 42, but then I would always have lunch and dinner on that day following the down day. Now I haven't done that since, gosh, I think it was 2016. That was the last time I did any fast longer than, you know, like not eating in a day. You know, I've done maybe, maybe a 27 hour fast just because I was busy, but I didn't go to bed without having eaten you know, that whole day. So I think that you really answered your own question, Amanda. I don't think one 48-hour fast is going to be dramatically better than doing two 36-hour fasts because, you know, there there does, you, you start getting, you know, the things that we're trying to ramp up really seem to ramp up, I think, between hours 24 and 36. And then they, some of the things start to level back down again. So I think you'd get more bang from your, for your buck for two 36-hour fasts as opposed to one 48. That's just my hunch, especially if you don't like the, the way the longer fasts feel. What do you think, Melanie? So I have a couple different thoughts here. Either way, uh, kind of like what you were saying, Jen, I mean, when you're when you're going past that 24-hour mark and approaching like the 36 hours is where you're going a little bit you know, deeper into that really that fasted state, that fat burning mode. So 
either one is going to move you towards your goal. So I would pick the one that is most approachable for you. I mean, I think the answer for her is like almost in the question because she says that, you know, she can do the 36 hour fast, but she doesn't like doing the 48 hour fast, but she'll do it, you know, if if it has these extra benefits or whatever. I say, why sweat it and do that if you can do the 36 hour fast and it works in your lifestyle and both of them are going to move you towards your goal, you know, and it's not, um, it's not a race. And I honestly think that different people would probably respond differently. So for one person, maybe they would have more benefit from like a 48-hour fast, whereas another person might have more benefit from two 36-hour fasts. True. I mean, there's no set like this is like, the ideal for everybody kind of thing. Yeah. Like there's not, <laughs> there's not really an answer there. I think both are going to be pretty beneficial. And I mean, I do think there's the potential with like a longer type fast that maybe you might tap in more to the, not so much like, I mean, yes, the fat burning, but I think maybe some of the autophagy clearing, like really clearing out old proteins. So like immune modulating cellular cleansing aspects. I feel like with the 48 hour fast, maybe you would get, you know, a little bit more of that. But I think really if that was your goal, it might even be more about even a longer fast than 48 hours. I mean, that that 48 hours would do it, but if that was like what you were trying to hit hard, a lot of people do even longer fasts. So I think, honestly, I think it's what's most sustainable. I mean, first of all, kudos to you because, I mean, a lot of people, even just a 36-hour fast is not even approachable to them. So you're at a really good place right now, just at baseline. So I would encourage you to do what works best in your life, which it sounds to me is the 36 hour fast. And like, you don't even have to do two, two 36 hour fasts a week. You could do one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's do you know what I'm saying. Like it's all yeah. going to move you towards your goals. So do what makes you happy and is sustainable. I don't see any reason to be, you know, to make things more complicated or more difficult than they need to be. Exactly. All right. All right. Let's move on. We have a question from Jacqueline. And the subject is skin application. She says, I make a whipped blend body butter of virgin coconut oil, shea butter, and cocoa butter and apply it frequently throughout the day. I've noticed in your information that you suggest applying magnesium lotion and fermented cod liver cod liver oil to skin. Will my application of my body butter affect my fast? Thanks. So I did a ton of research on this, a ton. I'm really excited. When I get a question that I'm really excited about, I sort of research for like hours. So Jen, do you do you have thoughts on this? Well, I mean, the, to you- me, the definition of fasting has to do with, you know, the digestive system and what you're inputting into your body. You know, we're fasting from consuming food. And so putting things on your skin, yes, transdermally, it, you know, things do absorb into the bloodstream, but it's not going to put you into the fed state by any means. If anything, there could be an, you know, the scent can cause your body to release insulin if you think food's coming. But, you know, I use a coconut body wash during the fast with no trouble. So yeah, I I do not think putting things on your skin (laughs) causes you to break the fast. Before I looked into it deeper, that was my initial thoughts. Basically that even if it was absorbed, it would go straight into your bloodstream. So it would be fatty acids in your bloodstream, which the fasted state is a state where you're having. There's no situation in the world where they feed us by putting things on our skin. I mean, that's not how it, how feeding occurs in humans. Right. I did some research though, to see how much was absorbed. And cause I, I was thinking about it because when I get massages, which <laughs> I get a lot of those, I bring my own coconut massage oil and they, I mean, they use a lot of it. And so I was thinking when I was getting my massage, I was like, you know, I wonder, is it kind of like I'm eating this coconut oil? Because, you know, if she if she's using fourth of a cup of oil, I mean, that's a lot. So I did some research about how much oil, how much we absorb topically from fats. And it's pretty interesting. So like in one study, researchers actually applied. So this was safflower oil cream to patients daily for five weeks. And then they measured the their levels of linoleic acid, which is the main component of safflower oil in their bloodstream. And so of the total 5,300 milligrams applied to the skin, do you want to guess how much entered the blood? Yeah, I can't possibly guess. <laughs> do you want to guess like what percent? No. <laughs> I would guess it's not very much. It was actually almost 50%. It was 2,000 milligrams. Yeah, I still think that's really, really different than eating food. You know, I mean, we know that when you take medication transdermally in a patch, it goes into your body. But fasting is, is, 
digestive related. So I, just because something's being absorbed through your skin, that doesn't mean that it's breaking a fast. Oh, that's, that's I'm, that wasn't my argument at all. Okay. Okay. I mean, I a hundred percent know that things that you absorb through your things absorbed through your skin. I mean, we know a lot of medications are applied through patches, but I, I, I will never think it's breaking your fast. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. I mean, cause that's what I was saying at the beginning was that even if it was absorbed and it appears into the bloodstream, the fasted state would be a state where these fatty acids are in the bloodstream. So I'm not saying it breaks the fast. Okay. I'm just, okay. I'm just saying if people are curious. They are absorbed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If people are curious as to how much is it actually ending up in their bloodstream, it's a little bit different when they look at things like mineral oils and waxes that are typically used in body care products. So that first study was looking at like straight up oil, which looks like it is pretty well absorbed into the bloodstream. But then a lot of like skincare products and stuff are made more with mineral oils and waxes and different things like that. So there's been a lot of studies on those to see like how far they actually penetrate into the body. And it seems like in general, their penetration into the skin layer is not very deep which is actually sort of unfortunate from a cultural political perspective because (laughs) they will use these studies to say, oh, these compounds aren't really absorbed far or substantially into the body. So they're safe for use when I think a lot of them may have, you know, problematic compounds that we shouldn't be slathering on our skin. So in general, though, those type of oils like petroleum, mineral oil, they tend to kind of stop at the upper layer of the skin, which is known as the stratum corneum. And then um, just because Jacqueline did mention our initial discussion about putting cod liver oil and stuff on your on your skin, I will put a link to a study because it has been shown in studies that topical application of oil is, I'm reading from the study, a quote, effective means of delivering essential fatty acids to the skin and eventually to the rest of the body. So I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. And the show notes, by the way, will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 132. So long story short, I guess we don't think it's going to break your fast. Most of the skin creams probably don't go too far. Things like straight up oils though can ultimately end up in your bloodstream. All right. Fascinating. I I don't imagine that we're putting on enough that it's, (laughs) even if you're using it throughout the day, I cannot imagine. Yeah. I just can't imagine any mechanism where your body's like, yeah, I'm well fed now from this lotion eating through your skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like I said, the only reason I was thinking about it was with that, like the coconut massage oil. And I was like, if she uses, you know, 500 quote calories of oil, like, I mean, that's a lot of calories. We, I mean, I couldn't find any studies though for saturated fats. So I don't know. No. All right. So the next question comes from Nina and Nina says, Hi, ladies. Love your podcasts and Facebook groups. I started IF in April and just couldn't stick with it. I am an athlete and I work out very hard early mornings, six days a week. I was trying to fast until noon every day, but felt so depleted after my workouts that I ended up caving around nine most mornings and downing a protein shake. I was frustrated because I wanted the benefits of IF and was disappointed almost every day. So about a month ago, I felt super energized and ready to give it another try. I take a minimal pre-workout every morning, it's called LIT, and I use about a quarter of a scoop. I woke up one morning and took my normal pre-workout, hit the gym, and I was able to fast until 4 p.m. I was so excited. Since then, I've been doing the same. I have my tiny bit of pre-workout, go to the gym, and I'm able to last all day. My question is, do these few calories that kickstart me really negate all the effects of the 20-hour fast, or does my high-intensity workout kick me back into a fasted state again quicker? Did I even really come out of it? I feel like if this is a way that will make IF doable for me, it's worth it. On the other hand, if I'm not getting any of the autophagy benefits, then there's probably no point in me continuing. Thoughts? And we do have a few different questions related to this subject. We can go ahead and address this, and then I think the follow-up ones will be um, okay. pretty easy to address after that. All right. Yep. This is a great question, Nina. And it's really one that's, of course, difficult for us to answer specifically. You know, you say you're using a tiny amount. You know, we don't know how much that is, what's in it. So many, so many questions about that. But here's here's the thing that I wondered while I was hearing your story in that, you know, you were trying to fast early on and you couldn't do it. 
And then, but now you can. And I wonder if you would have the same results now. Like, I wonder if that was part of, you know, the adaptation process. Like perhaps before you were having a hard time with the fasted workouts because you weren't adapted. And then yes, the the heavy workout coupled with not being adapted to the fast yet would make it really, really hard. My recommendation would be now that you seem to be adapted and you're, you're sailing through, I would experiment without the pre-workout. We do know that, I mean, I'm assuming the pre-workout has protein and stuff like that in it. I don't know. But we we do know that the ingredients that are in most of those pre-workouts do tend to stop autophagy. The big question is for how long, how much, how long does it take to get back into the fasted state? And you're right. There are so many variables at play that we can't tell you precisely, you know, how long is it stopping it? How long is it taking you to get back in? Ideally, you would not want to have something like that during the fast. So, you know, you've got to balance sustainability. You know, you've got a lot of goals. Maybe autophagy isn't your number one goal. And maybe that pre-workout, you don't mind being kicked out of the fasted state and having autophagy stopped. You know, because we can't tell you 100% it is, 100% it isn't. You just have to weigh all of the things that could be happening and decide what is the most important to you right then. And and again, like I said, I would experiment without it now that you seem to be adapted. Perhaps you don't need it now. You know, and one other piece of the wording that I wanted to, to reiterate, she said, you know, does it negate all of the effects of the 20-hour fast? I mean, of course not. You know, it's not going to negate 20 hours worth of the fast, but it, it's, you know, it might not be something, it might be interrupting some processes that you don't want to interrupt, but negating everything, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot to say. So it looks like in lit what it has, it has in particular beta alanine, creatine, caffeine, elevate, elevate TP. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> Coffee fruit extract, L-citrulline, nitrocygenine. It does look to be like sort of, quote, minimal on the pre-workout side of things. I do have a fun fact about creatine. I have um, researched that, and that appears to be more effective when you have that with food, just FYI. Yeah, I think we actually talked about that. I came across that. that, yeah. I realized recently that autophagy is a lot more complicated than it's kind of similar to insulin, where people think insulin's either on or off when that's like not the case. <laughs> you know, like we always have a baseline sort of insulin. We do. We do. Yeah. And there's there's this graphic that's going around that that has it says that at, at X hour of a fast, all insulin stops. I'm like, no, no, yeah. no it doesn't. <laughs> and I think autophagy is sort of like that. And I, I we talked even at one point about a study talking about how there was like a baseline sort of autophagy going on I think all the time even, but a lot of different factors actually can influence autophagy. And especially I've been reading recently David Sinclair's new book and, you know, he talks about a lot of even like fasting mimetic molecules that create a lot of the beneficial effects of fasting without being in the fasted state. And I think a lot of that goes for autophagy as well. And um, I would actually recommend everybody, I haven't, I started reading it, I haven't finished it, but it's um, Simland who, Simland, I don't know how you say his name, he has his podcast, Body, Mind, Empowerment. He has a new book actually out called Metabolic Autophagy. And I'm loving it because it's basically all about fasting, fasting approaches, autophagy. He goes deep into the science of it. It's very sciencey, but still approachable to read. I'll actually, when I finish reading it, report back on the takeaways from that book. But long story short, I think ideally I would say, you know, use black coffee as your pre-workout if you can you know, hands down is not breaking the fastest state for you and it gets you through, why not use that? That said, from like a lifestyle type approach, like Jen said, I don't think you're going to negate the entire fast prior to that. And I am all for finding like the sustainable approach that works for you. And I would, and we know the exercise itself increases autophagy. So yeah, that's true. On the one hand, you it's like if you're choosing between not exercising and not taking the pre-workout, true, you might have, you know, autophagy from the fasted state compared to exercising with this small pre-workout. Maybe you're stopping some of the autophagy, but then maybe you're getting more autophagy from the exercise. So it's just really, really complicated. 
is the point. I would say in general, please don't take pre-workouts that are like super, you know, sweetened and flavored and have lots of additives. If you're going to go the pre-workout route, I would say go minimal, minimal, minimal. Try to find, you know, the cleanest one that is like minimal ingredients that gets you through. I mean, honestly, I really think that's coffee. I was also going to suggest, so she says that she works out early in the morning, tries to fast until noon, but ends up caving around nine. What What if you tried adjusting your window a little bit so that you ate from like nine to 5 p.m.? Because that would be an eight hour window, you know? Yeah. What, what is her normal window? I mean, she didn't say. Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. That would be that's an interesting idea. Just shift it lower to earlier. Yeah. So that was that's something else you could consider. I'm really excited about our partnership with Away. Away is thoughtful luggage for modern travel. Away creates products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase crafted with features that make travel more seamless. Now they offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. So all you have to think about is where you're headed next. Because Away means getting more out of every trip to come. Away knows that everyone has a different travel style. That's why they make their carry-on in an array of colors, two sizes, and two materials. A strong yet flexible polycarbonate and an anodized aluminum. You could choose the carry-on or the bigger carry-on. And that's the one I prefer because I am not a light packer. The bigger carry-on gives me enough room to pack in all that stuff that I need to take with me, but it still fits the overhead bin. One thing I love about Away is that they will fix or replace my suitcase if anything goes wrong. Another great thing is that you have a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. Take it out on the road and live with it, travel with it, get lost with it. If you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund. No ifs, ands, or asterisks. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash ifpodcast and use promo code ifpodcast during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase at awaytravel.com slash ifpodcast using promo code ifpodcast during checkout. Happy travels. Hi, guys. So as you know, I am all into biohacks for upgrading your health, performance, and just life in general. And what's one of my favorite biohacks in the world? That would have to be red light and near-infrared therapy. We get so many amazing listener emails and feedback about red light therapy, but we also get questions about the science behind it. The reason red light and near-infrared therapy can seem to magically fix almost everything, sort of like intermittent fasting, is because it works on the level of the cells to actually change how the mitochondria generate energy. And when your cells are properly generating energy, well everything just seems to work better. Red light can modulate blood flow and signaling pathways. It can discourage reactive oxygen species, and it can even activate stem cells. All of this can help the cells grow, repair, and regenerate. Red light has amazing anti-aging benefits. It can increase collagen production in the skin and make the skin healthier in the process. A 2005 study of 600 patients found that 90% reported a softening of their skin texture and a reduction in their roughness and fine lines. How about fat burning? Well, it turns out red light may actually break apart fat cells, so then they release their fatty acids into the bloodstream for use by the body. And since we're fasting around here, you can then burn off those fatty acids in the fasted state. Studies have also shown that red light may actually create metabolic changes which cause fat cells to undergo apoptosis, or cell death. A 2009 study of 67 patients undergoing treatment with red light for two weeks found they actually lost an average of 3.51 inches in their hips, waist, and thighs, and that was without any changes in diet or exercise. So imagine what happens when you pair it with intermittent fasting. Additionally, a 2012 double-blind controlled randomized study found that spot-treating upper arm fat with red light made a significant and progressive effect in reducing fat compared to not using it. So they say there's no such thing as targeted fat burning, but red light just may be the key to that. There are a lot of, quote, red light therapy devices out there, but the specific wavelength is key. Juve makes red light and near-infrared therapy devices that can bring you all of these benefits. Researchers at Juve have made sure that the wavelengths in their devices are the exact wavelengths that you need to experience all of these benefits. 
They also have a complete money-back guarantee. And we do have a special offer. If you go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the code ifpodcast, you will receive a free gift from Juve. All right, now back to the show. Do you want to read the next question, Jen? Yes. And this is from Jess. And she says, hi, the the subject is, do pre-workouts break your fast? Hi, guys. My name is Jess, and I'm writing to you from Australia. I have a question about pre-workouts and whether they're useful break your fast. I'm currently following the 16-8 method, my eating window being from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. as this works best for my lifestyle. I work out five times a week in the mornings at 6 a.m., which means I'm working out in a fasted state of roughly 13-ish hours. The first few times I tried to work out fasted, I felt quite faint and couldn't complete my workout, so I did some research and managed to find a zero-calorie pre-workout, which I thought was great being zero-calorie, thinking it wouldn't break my fast. After doing some more research, however, some people suggest that whether a pre-workout is low-calorie or not, the natural sugars slash sweeteners in the pre-workout still cause an insulin response, hence may break your fast, but the debate seems quite split on this one. I would really love to know what you guys think. Does a zero-calorie pre-workout break the fast simply because of the natural sugars slash sweeteners used in the flavoring? Thank you so much. Love your podcast and love the two of you. Yeah, this one sounds the same thing. It sounds like trying to work out fasted early in the process, which is hard for everybody. Or some people. Well, I mean, when you're first starting off to and your body is adjusting to fasting, I think it's hard for people to work out. I mean, I think that's almost universal. I, I guess I'm just thinking back when I started and I found it actually really easy. Yeah, but weren't you already like keto adapted? Didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So see, that's different. I mean, I'm talking about people who are just starting off and they've not done anything, you know, coming from the normal fed state to intermittent fasting. Yeah, that's true. Your body's going to have to adjust and, and it's not going to, you're not going to want to, you know, it's hard to do the exercise regimen. But this is, this is just really funny because it's the suggestion you just made <laughs> to have an early window from 9 a.m. to, you know, that's exactly what you just said to do is what um, Jess is doing, having the morning window oh, right true. after working yeah, out. Yeah, it's the exact, <laughs> the exact window. Yeah, I mean, this is brings in another aspect to the pre-workout because she's talking about the sweet flavor. I do think that's definitely something you want to avoid for sure. I'm not a body a bodybuilder. Admittedly, I would honestly want to refer people to Ben Greenfield's podcast or like, you know, people that are more nuanced in this because neither Jen nor I are huge gym goers. We like honestly don't really have as much hands-on experience with this. That said, if at all possible, I just I mean, I feel like for the longest time, people were not using pre-workouts, you know? No, and they, they were not. And they were... It's a, it's a whole new category. And, you know, I think back all the years I've done the intermittent fasting support groups since 2015, no one even said the word pre-workout probably till late 2017. Like, I don't yeah. even think this category of products was mainstream enough for people to even be taking them. And now it's like, everybody's like, I got to have a pre-workout. Like, I think it's a very commercialized thing. Like, I don't right. think we really need mm-hmm. it. And I think that yep. the, the industry has done a brilliant job at making it seem like it's Required. what we need. When I don't think that's the case. I, I think either. black coffee is the probably the best pre-workout. Or, that's co- what I think or the 100%. coffee enema. Well, okay. <laughs> I was thinking... That would be a very interesting gym workout. I don't think I would advise that. Coffee enema and then go do your workout. <laughs> Oops. Just make sure you give enough time in between. <laughs> yeah. Or like have special undergarments. I don't know. That sounds like a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And then one more similar question from Nadine. She says, hi, I just started listening to you girls and I love the episodes. I'm almost two weeks in and I love IF. I haven't seen any results yet, but I'm waiting. I have a question. I usually work out while fasting. Does any of the pre-workout drinks like C4 or any pre-workout drinks break the fast while fasting? So again, there's there's so many pre-workout drinks out there. We couldn't, I mean, there's really no point in providing a comprehensive overview of every single pre-workout drink. I'm just going to revert to everything we just said. <laughs> Coffee right. if possible. If you do go the pre-workout route and decide to make that part of your lifestyle, try to find one that is, you know, minimal research those ingredients. I'll report back with everything I learned about autophagy from that that book I'm reading. And I just really want to caution 
everybody to not judge what you can and can't do during the early days. Because even this question from Nadine, she's two weeks in, and that is still very early days. So you really just can't judge how you're feeling from a workout until your body is fully adapted to fasting. So just always keep that in mind. You know, you want your source of energy to be your stored body fat during the fast. Now, if you're at a really low weight, that's that's one thing. You know, you may have a difficult time finding that energy that you need. You may need a longer window. You may need to eat more food than than someone who's trying to lose fat. I mean, you definitely will if you're not trying to lose fat, trying to burn your body fat. But really, you know, keep in mind how long you've been doing it. Do you have enough stored body fat to fuel you? So many variables go into play. Endurance athletes are going to have different needs than someone who is overweight and trying to to burn body fat and and become lean. Yep. All right. We ready for the next one? Yes. This is from Katie. And the subject is help. Katie says, first of all, let me just say that I love this podcast and look forward to it every week. I've been listening since December of 2017, at which time I had been doing a version of IF 16-8, but not fasting clean. I started with a clean fast after the new year and my fasting hours are so much easier. I almost always do a 24 daily fast with a longer eating window on the weekends occasionally. Here's where I'm struggling and I hope you can help. I'm not using IF to lose weight. I'm very active and came from the eat six to seven meals a day to build muscle and maintain energy approach. That stopped working for me. Not because I gained weight or wasn't seeing muscle definition, but because it started to become a stress in my life. This is one thing I love about fasting. I don't get hangry and feel much less stress surrounding food. I exercise six days a week early, 5.30 a.m., mix of high-intensity interval training, weights, and low-impact recovery like yoga. I don't want to decrease my activity because I enjoy it, truly. I drink about four ounces of black coffee as a pre-workout, and then I may have a second cup, but not every day. I do not get hungry at all until about 1 p.m. Usually, I can push it off as I prefer to open my window later, like 4 p.m. Some days, I'll eat in two hours. Some days, I'll eat in four to six hours. I've tried eating early, When I first feel hungry and it just doesn't work for me, I end up eating too much. However, if I wait until four and eat a snack, usually a protein shake, lately I've been using a keto collagen because the collagen helps my skin and some veggies, then dinner, I feel like I tend to binge after dinner. Not on terrible food, it just feels like dinner doesn't do it for me, even though it's a larger meal and mostly protein, veggies, and fat. I'm not completely low carb, but I try to follow a more paleo approach except the occasional tortilla chip, sorry, Melanie, haha, and I don't eat a ton of fruit because it makes me crave sugar. I guess the questions are, am I harming myself in any way by ignoring that initial hunger cue around lunchtime considering my activity level? And is there a way to avoid this feeling the need to keep eating after dinner until my window closes? It's like I can't get full, so I graze and then feel like I overate. I'm wondering if it's more out of habit or if I'm still just not fully in tune with my hunger and satiety signals. Any advice would be great. Thanks for your help and keep up the good work and happy retirement, Jen, Katie. And I I think this one was from like over a year ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's been a while, Katie. One reason I wanted to throw it in there was because she was an example of using black coffee as a pre-workout. Yep, I thought so. But yeah, thank you so much for your question, Katie. So I guess for her first question, is she harming herself by ignoring that initial hunger cue around lunchtime, considering her activity level? What are your thoughts on that one, Jen? Well, there's one really big clue that seems to be a red flag. And it's when she says she feels like she tends to binge. Now, I don't know. It, it, th- this is, this, it depends. I mean, is she really binging or did she just feel like, gosh, I just ate a lot of food? And in our society, you know, we've been taught to eat little meals, you know, frequently. So having a big hearty meal might feel like a binge because you're just not used to having a big hearty meal, if, if that makes sense. So if she does, though, feel like, like waiting until later is making her binge, if, she, if it really is binge behavior, that is something to be concerned with because over-restricting and over-fasting can lead to binging. And when you start binging, that's a bad sign that what you're doing is perceived by your body as overly restrictive. So I would really think long and hard about it. Is it really binge behavior or is it just, you know, hearty eating that is 
unfamiliar because of the previous, you know, habit of eating small meals and feeling like if you're eating a big meal, that must be too much food. So I would, I would think that that would be an important question to answer, you know, harming yourself by ignoring initial hunger. See, that's another thing too. You know, so many sensations we perceive during the day are like, oh, this is hunger. You know, I have waves of hunger. We've talked about this before. We have like a mild sensation of, oh, I could eat now. And I tend to find that happens right before my body shifts into ketosis. Like I'll have a wave of something that's like, oh, you could eat. And if I don't, then I like get that fabulous clarity really soon after that. And I know that was my body making that shift. Is that hurting me? I don't think so. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I really like everything you said. With the whole like restricting and then overeating thing, I think we do see, on the one hand, intermittent fasting can be like an amazing key for tackling that issue. And I think it is for so many people. And because it allows you to actually, you know, eat all you want within your eating window. So you don't feel the need to, you know, restrict and binge because you get to, you get to have, you know, you get to be nourished and get all that you want while you're eating. And then you, you're naturally restricting, but not like in a deprived feeling state. So it can be super beneficial for even, you know, addressing issues like that. On the flip side, some people may find the opposite effect, like Jim was talking about, where they where it does lead to, you know, a sort of emotional or habit related binge type behavior. And if the latter is the case, so I'm actually reading a book right now that I highly, highly suggest people check out. And it's not specifically about hunger or binge eating or food, but actually the author wrote it from that perspective, but it's called The Little Book of Big Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. It's by Amy Johnson, who is a PhD, and I will put a link to it in the show notes, but it is absolutely amazing. And it's very scientific, but it's it's short though and very approachable and so well-written. But what it talks about is if it is a, a habit thing, like Katie is wondering, you know, she's wondering if it's more out of habit or is it something else? If it is like a habit thing, which I think often this is, this book talks all about these urges that we get in our head. And basically the science of it is really, really fascinating because basically we have these habits and these and these urges to do things because like a, a deeper evolutionary part of our brain that is not our higher cognitive self that's driven more on survival mechanisms has decided that certain behaviors or actions or habits are necessary for survival. She talks about this in depth in the book, so I really will just refer listeners to it. But once those associations are made, it's it's like we feel like we have to do these things to survive when that's not necessarily the case or where it may not necessarily be the case. So for example, with Katie, with her eating, she might get these these thoughts in her head that, oh, I, I need to keep eating more. I need to keep eating more. And it seems dire and like it must happen right now when really that it might not be the case. And the book, it talks about how honestly, the best way to address that is to just not engage with it. Because the reason we often give into our habits or give into our urges is because we want them to go away. Like ultimately, that's that's what we want. We want that that feeling to go away. And we think the only way to make that feeling go away is to give into it. So if you're in a, a situation where you feel like you're overeating, you want to keep eating and and the unpleasant feeling of wanting to overeat, the only way that you can think at that moment to make it go away is to eat more. When what she talks about in this book is that actually it's going to go away either way. So you don't have to give into it. You can choose just to not engage with it rather than give into it. And she's, it's, she says it's like a no willpower approach because you don't like, it's not about willpower. It's about just realizing that it's an urge, it's a habit, but it's not you and you don't have to engage with it. And that ultimately it will go away. The book has, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. So I definitely check, recommend that people check it out. And the, the reason I think it could be actually really revolutionary for you, Katie, is that I think after you read it, it'll give you a really good perspective of these urges. And I think it will help you identify after reading it. I really think it'll help you identify when you are in this moment of wanting to overeat, whether or not it's coming from 
an actual need or if it's coming from a habit. I think after reading this book, you'll have a pretty good idea with that just because of how she does talk about that that urge and that inner voice in our head. One little fascinating takeaway that I love, and I've read this in other books too, is basically that it's the reptilian part of our brain that you know has these urges and these drives that are often attached to habits. It doesn't have language. So because it's like a deeper part of our brain that's not in the part of our brain that processes language. So in a way it like hijacks the language part of our brain so that we hear these voices and these urges in our head in our own voice. So we think it's, we think it's our, we think it's us when, I mean, it is us because it's, it's our body and our brain, but it's like a part of our brain using our language to speak in our, our voice to make us want to do something. So like, you know, for people who want to smoke a cigarette or keep checking their email or, you know, doing, just like doing lots of behavior, like in our head, we hear, we hear the voice saying like, oh, you need to do this because of blah, 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 blah. Like, and we hear all these reasons and we hear this voice and we think it's us when it's quite possible that it's a deeper part of our body that has chosen to use the language part of our brain to talk to us and make it think, <laughs> make it seem like it's, I don't know if I'm making sense, but make it seem like it's quote us when really it's this survival instinct. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like those deep urges that come from a place that's not within your conscience conscious control. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But they, but they speak in our voice, which is really interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. That was, yeah. I would really recommend people read this book. And like I said, it's pretty, pretty short. So you can um, get the, the science of it pretty quick. All right. That sounds like a great one. Do we have time for one more question? So the next question comes from Tommy. The subject is irregular fasting and feasting. And Tommy says, Hey ladies, hope you are both well and in good health. I submitted a question last year about IF to get shredded, and I thank you very much for your time and great info. I now usually train in a fasted state three to four days a week, and I'm seeing all kinds of results from decreased body fat, increase in muscle mass, and just generally feeling good with high energy. My question this time is to do with irregular fasting and feasting times. I wanted to know both of your thoughts on breaking the fast at different times throughout the week. For example, on Monday, I fasted for 19 hours, trained at about 5 p.m., and then had one meal at about 7 p.m., and then fell asleep at about 9 p.m. The next day, I broke my fast at 2 p.m. with a keto-style lunch and had my last bite of dinner at 10 p.m. I always fast for 16 hours minimum, but there, but are there any benefits or risks of increasing or decreasing fasting and feeding times over the weeks and months? My average fasting time is 10 p.m. to 2 p.m., 16 hours, but some days I may get delayed at work or decide to wait to eat after training. Would this confuse the body's natural cycles, such as when ghrelin is released or the body's metabolism? Any info you have would be appreciated. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. Tommy. Yeah, I think this is a great question. And really, you're you're wondering if mixing it up is a bad thing when actually I would say it's the opposite. Mixing things up is a good thing because, you know, our bodies can adapt to anything that's too similar day in and day out. And so switching things up is is good. So you know, if I ate exactly the same amount of food, exactly the same time of day, exactly, you know, my body would adapt to that. So yeah, don't worry that switching it up to suit your life is making things, you know, bad for your body in some way. Instead, think of about it as a little, you know, metabolic confusion, if you were, or if, if you will, that is actually more likely to be helpful. What do you think, Melanie? Okay, I have a slightly different thought. I think for Tommy, everything you said, yes. That said, I think for somebody who is new to intermittent fasting, I don't recommend they use this approach at the beginning because I think I think it can make the adjustment period much more difficult. That's because Tommy mentioned, for example, ghrelin. So we do know that, so ghrelin is the quote hunger hormone, which can make you hungry. And we do know it does adjust to meal timing. So if you are, you know, eating at a certain time each day, it'll tend to adjust accordingly. So you get hungry at the same times each day. So I think for somebody who is new to intermittent fasting, it's I think it's pretty important to pick a window and stick to it just so you can let your hormones regulate. You can get used to dipping into a consistent fasted state and you don't have this worry of, oh, I'm just switching things up. So I'm going to, you know do this here and this there. I think that could be a danger. For some people, I think it could be a slightly slippery slope because then um, 
it might be it might make it harder to adapt because they could think oh i'll just this is me switching things up when like they haven't actually reached the point of easily dipping into the fasted state so i think switching things up especially if it's like a um a very consistent basis which it sounds like it is for tommy you know it's like like a day-to-day type thing switching it up that is something i would encourage for people after some sort of like comfort with intermittent fasting where they feel pretty fat adapted that said i think for a lot of people it works really well i mean it sounds like it's working great for tommy so keep on keeping on I think it's fine. I think it kind of reminds me. So I'm reading right now, or I finished because I have the interview this week. Oh, David Sinclair's longevity book. And he has so much in there about fasting, like so much. And he's done so much research on longevity. And it's interesting because he doesn't really even talk about intermittent fasting. He doesn't say everybody needs to do, you know, a daily intermittent fast of like a certain window. He doesn't really talk about that. What he talks about is just the importance of going hungry at certain points. And I do think he means hungry on a cellular level, not like a literal level. I'm actually that's actually one of my big biggest questions that I'm going to ask him this week because I think that's actually really important to distinguish. And I know he personally does more of like just like, you know, skipping meals and not being fed all the time and focusing on that rather than any specific window. I do think for like health and lifespan that this sort of approach that Tommy's doing can work for a ton of people and be super health supportive. My only caution is I think maybe at the beginning, if you are adopting the intermittent fasting lifestyle, this might not be the best approach to start with. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think that sounds great. There is a lot to be said for the adjustment phase and letting your body have a consistent rhythm so that you can adjust to fasting. If you're not fasting long enough, you know, it's going to be really hard to adjust. Like somebody today was talking in the Facebook group about how she started and stopped a thousand times and just can't get into it. I'm like, well, that's why, you know, the starting and stopping a thousand times, you never get adjusted. So you're like living in the adjustment phase, which is the hardest part. And you never get past that. But once you get past that, that's when, you know, keeping the body guessing is, is more of a pro than a con. You got to get there first. Exactly. (laughs) I'm dying though to ask David Sinclair that question because he talks about, he says it a lot. I've heard him say in interviews, he says it in his book, he says the importance of being hungry. And I, I want to know if we actually, if he thinks we need to like actually feel hungry or if it's just like quote hungry on a cellular level. Because I wonder if like the actual feeling hunger, if that has any effect on the gene, the genetic effects. Yeah, that's a great question. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 132. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you'd like early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance, then definitely follow us in the Himalaya app and you will get that. You can also follow our playlist, Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like in that app. which is really awesome. I put all of the random interviews that I'm listening to. Oh, there was a really, I put a recent one. Sorry, I keep talking about it, but David Sinclair, I think it was him on, it might've actually been him on Simland, the guy who wrote, the guy who wrote that metabolic autophagy, bringing everything full circle, (laughs) bringing everything together. They had a podcast interview together and the last question, or it might've been an interview with somebody else. Anyways, the last question they asked him was, what was the most important thing for longevity. And what do you think his answer was, Jen? Fasting? Yeah, it was like be hungry <laughs> at some point. Like <laughs> like at some point, like basically during the, you know, have a point of hunger at some point during the day. Yeah, just, just fasted state. Yep. Emphasize the fasted state and do not be constantly in the fed state. I really, really think that's just the root of it all. You know, if you're constantly in the fed state, You don't give your body time to do any of the healing and repair that it needs because your body is 100% of the time trying to deal with digestion. And that takes so much of your body's resources that it makes sense that we we end up in the state of disease and obesity that we're finding ourselves in as a society. And the more the advice to eat, you know, now we're not just eating six meals a day. We're having pre-workouts and post-workouts. And next there's going to be a during workout, I'm sure. They're probably already inventing that pause your workout and have this, then do, this is, this is workout 0.5. I don't know. Maybe I should invent that. I'll be a billionaire. When you have your workout, pause in the middle of your workout and eat, take this. (laughs) Yeah. And it's maybe we need middle of the night meals as well. I mean, yeah. And it's, 
it's not even just it, the digestion. It's I, I honestly think it's really about the genetic level, which I'll put a link to that book, Lifespan, in the show notes. But basically, when we're in the fed state, the growth state, our genes, especially ones called sirtuins, and now this is a whole tangent, so I, maybe we should talk about this at the beginning of the next episode. But basically, those genes that promote lifespan, grow, or rep, not growth, lifespan, repair, you know, f- fixing things, keeping things running, they, they're they turned off when you're you know in this growth type fed state. And then when you're in the fasted state, they're turned on and they go and do well, all I, of their magic. Sorry. I think it's, it's, it's just that we have so many resources to go around and they have to, you know, focus on the most important thing. And so, yeah, turn, eating turns those things off, but it's so our bodies can con- have to we have something else we have to do. Oh, we have to do this now. Or like, you know, if you're sick, your body wants to work on that. But if you're constantly eating and your body has, it's it's like, you know, that classroom of kids when I was a teacher and you have all these kids around you and they all need you at the same time. And then you can't really focus on anything well because you're trying to do too many things. It's like the ultimate multitasking when really your body needs to have some time just okay, <laughs> I don't need to do all the things at once. You know, you, you can't, you can't do it all well. Everybody definitely check out both of those books because they're amazing. And like I said, I will put links to them in the show notes and you can just to pick up what I was saying. You can follow us on Instagram. We are IF podcast and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF pod. All right. So I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.